Good friends, um, I've asked Eskia to come and uh, share something of his story. Uh, this is an outstanding, outstanding young man, and in chatting with him, um, him and uh, his wife Lizette are navigating a trial, and James is about trials, and I just said, I would love it if you came and shared uh, something of your story. Uh, so, um, I really just, well, I'm going to ask you to come up, and you can look at this. The three questions that uh, we kind of chatted through are, um, if you can just help us understand the trial that you're currently facing, um, how you've allowed God to shape you and is shaping you, and then how we as a family can respond and serve you in that trial. Morning, guys. Um, yeah, it's a, we've we've been um, struggling with falling pregnant for the last six years or so. I always f lose track of time a little bit, um, just because it's such a long journey. And at the risk of being the Grinch that steals Mother's Day today with my story, please forgive me if I do that. But it's just been yeah, it's been quite a hectic journey for us because we we both quite. I wouldn't say we're achievers, that would be a, sound, be a bit, little bit weird, but um, I think we've always been in a scenario where if we really care about something and we work hard enough, you know, we would get that thing. And this has really been an interesting journey because we, we've done a gazillion tests and the doctors have said there's nothing wrong uh, with any of us, but it's just not happening for us. And I think the challenge with that is it then causes you to reflect on why, why the journey is necessary and why we're going through this. And yeah, I must say the last six years have been challenging at times. We, everything we do, everything we enjoy sort of happens at the backdrop of this deficit that you, you feel you're the only one living in. Um, and people have been amazing, but it's also been a journey for us trying to explain to people how to support us. Because we've often found that people would pity you from a distance, which isn't helpful because it basically just makes you feel like a, a victim. And if, if, you've, if you're a victim, you excuse all sorts of bad behavior and bad disciplines and stuff, and it's not really helpful to, for you to navigate the journey. And the other thing that's also not, hasn't been helpful is when, when people would say to you, well, it's gonna happen for you at some point, but we, we, we've just realized that we don't know that. So um, our friends that have really come close to us and sort of sit, sat with us to be confused with us is, uh, has been, really been helpful. People that have been trying to understand with us what is God, how is God shaping us through this? And one of the things that I've recently, and it's not, this, this is not one of those stories where it's, it was tough, now I can tell you a story of how it's all over. We're actually in, sort of in the midst of it right now. But one of the cool things that I've re realized recently, and even with Gareth's preach last week, is that when God takes us through a trial, the, the purpose of that tri trial can, can sometimes just be that we have a lot of theoretical ideas of who God is, and understanding that, yo, my idea of who God is needs to be bigger, or I'm not gonna make it through this trial. And so, um, something that I read recently in Lamentations 3, it says in the first part, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, to my, so I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. But later in, in Lamentations is this famous bit that says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So I think for us, if this journey is, if the main aim of this, in, from God's perspective, is that we have a bigger perspective of who he is and seeing clearer, if we never fall pregnant, I think it's not a wasted trial. And so if you want to stand with us in the season, pray that we really do see God clearer and have a bigger vision of who he is. Think of Job who went through uh, trials and at the end of it, his view of how the whole thing culminated was that he knew about God, he's heard about God, but now he's seen it for himself. So if you want to pray for us, I think you can obviously pray for us to have some good news at some point, but pray that God would really show us who he really is so that things that we hold in the theoretical, that is certainly not enough to take us through trials like this, become practically true and that we come face to face with the big God that we serve. That's, that's all I want to share. Thanks. Thank you, Eskia, for uh, sharing, but also it's just been a real privilege to get to know you and to see the quality and depth of your faith, and I really mean that. A very, very special man. Uh, a, a word that Eskia used was confusing. Uh, confusing. And I, I've, I might use another word, mystery, and then he said, the, you know, the, the image of of our God that we carry um, sometimes is not who he really is. And here's the thing. I think for us as Christians, we, we don't expect an easy life. Uh, we're not expecting a life uh, devoid of trials. But sometimes we're not expecting the type of trials that we go through. We would never anticipate not to be able to fall pregnant. We would never anticipate a miscarriage we would never anticipate a divorce. We would never anticipate losing our jobs. We would never anticipate having a family member with an addiction. And all the trauma that those things bring, we, we generally don't, don't have that type of understanding of God. And so um, the purpose uh, of these trials is, is really around um, changing the lenses on which we view life. It's not just, okay, I just need this to help me get through. It's changing our perspective on how we navigate life to maybe this end, that whatever happens to us, we can genuinely and honestly say, God is good. And that's, that's maturing in faith. And the whole of life is this process. It's like a curriculum that God, you know, uses the realities of our life to produce maturity within us. That he might be glorified, because he's doing something beautiful within you and with I. And that uh, others might taste and see the goodness of God. And I would imagine, you know, what's really interesting as I stand here this morning is that uh, all of you bring in a story to this morning. You bring your story and your struggles and your wrestles and where you're at at the moment. And um, 
And the temptation is to think you're not doing well, you're failing. But I want to say that um, uh, it's very likely that that's not true. Even in your struggle and your wrestle, God is producing something within you that is of great benefit to those around you, particularly those who do not believe in God. Their eyes are watching how you navigate crisis, even when you're not navigating it that well. Still, your dependency and your crying out to God and one another is producing something that glorifies God. So, um, let's have a look at what the scripture says as we navigate through James. James chapter 1 and verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded and stable in all his ways. And this is what we covered in this first session of this series, is that James says that uh, you're definitely going to go through trials and hardships. It's inevitable. Secondly, James says they're various. They, they are diverse in nature. And thirdly, they are beneficial. We said that trials are there to shape us, not to shame us. Trials are there to shape us, not to shame us. Just as a test shows us where we lack, so our trials are there to show us where we lack dependence upon God. They're not there to shame us. And then last week, uh, Gareth did really well in just showing, talking about wisdom. Um, and really what he said is wisdom is not the knowledge to get out of the trial, or not the, the knowledge just to, to make the, the, you know, the thing happen, to make a plan. Wisdom is the ability to know how to endure, to stand firm through the difficulty. That doesn't mean that God doesn't help you out, but wisdom is the ability to stand how to do life when life is unexpected. And so we come to the third message today, and really the first four messages, which includes Heather's message next week, is really about how we navigate trials and difficulties. James chapter 1 verse 9 says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also the rich man fades away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And uh, I think this morning's message should carry a health warning. When we look at how strong uh, James is and how he deals with certain things, um, uh, it should offend you, um, and uh, it should cause some resistance. And this is a, could be a fairly uh, confusing passage, because basically it's saying, well, the poor are going to be exalted, and the rich humiliated, and he goes on to speak a little bit more about, you know, that wealth is just like the flower, it's here today and it's gone tomorrow, and then he says, keep on going. Well, let's unpack this a little bit. 
four things that I think James can teach us. But before we do that, you know, I, uh, I was watching a um, documentary on surgery and uh, doing a transplant, and before uh, they do the transplant, they the, the disinfect part of this body here in terms of just a, a obviously a, a solution that, that creates hygiene. And I think it's good for us to uh, just to pray that as God does surgery on our hearts this morning, uh, uh, that um, uh, His Holy Spirit would do it. It would not come to condemn, because God's Word never comes to condemn, but always to encourage and to build up. Is that okay? Can we pray? Father, as we look at your Word, particularly words that come to deeply impact us, um, I really pray that your power of your Holy Spirit would come and um, do a great work, that we would see you and uh, uh, your words coming and bringing us life and bringing us wholeness, O oh God. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. So, friends, James teaches us four things, uh, possibly more, but I'm just heading out four. What are the trials that rich and poor face? Secondly, James says both parties can boast. Why would they boast in their trials? Or how can, they, how can both parties boast? Thirdly, how do they respond to their trials? And fourthly, what's the reward? Well, good. So, what are the trials of the rich and the poor? I think rich and poor are sub subjective words. Um, I find poor people don't call themselves poor and rich people generally don't call themselves rich. So let's have a look at scripture and see a little bit of some definitions. Um, Proverbs 10 says, a rich man's wealth is his strong city and the poverty of the poor is their ruin. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and the poverty of the poor is their ruin. ruin. I'll speak a little bit about... Um, the first bit later, I'm just going to hit out poverty. And the writer says, to be poor actually is to be ruined. And um, I found many people will say, if, if poor people just did this, this, and this, they wouldn't be poor. But it's a failure to understand the deep dynamics, economic, social, physiological, environmental, educational, every part um, um, of poverty makes it difficult to um, break out of poverty. I don't know if I've told this story before. Um, it actually wasn't in my notes, so it just came to me now. Just wave if I have. <laughs> um, but uh, I went to go and pray for a couple in a poor community, and I said, what can I pray for you? So I said, um, so they said, we'd love to you to pray for our daughter. Uh, she's nine, and she's not She's not, she's not going to school. So I said, what do you mean she's not going to school? So they said, no, she's going to school, but she's not being taught. In other words, in her school, there is no teaching. Um, so we prayed, and then I uh, phoned uh, a, a friend of ours who runs a school for disadvantaged people, but it's exceptionally well run and top-range top teachers, and I said, hey, listen, this is the case. Um, we have a nine-year-old girl in her school. She's not being taught. Can we, can we arrange to, for her to come to your school and our church will fund her schooling? And she said, Brendan, at nine years old, the cognitive skills that she's missed out by not actually going, being taught properly, it's too late. We can't get her back into the cycle. I said, that's crazy. I mean, surely we can 
do remedial teaching, we can get that back up. She said, I've tried so many times to reintegrate and it just doesn't work. So she says, I'll tell you what, Brennan, I'll bring her in for an assessment and just to, you know, not just to take my word. So we brought her in, I took her in together with the dad. And at nine years old, she was so far behind that the, that the school could not take her, even with remedial teaching. Can you see? It's not just be about being poor. There's a whole range of things of what poverty does that is deeply impactful. And it's not new because the writer says that the poverty is their ruin. And so... I like Tim Keller's definition of poverty. It's to have no abilities or resources that are valued. To have no abilities or resources that are valued. And poverty ruins lives. Just for us to look at wealthy, if the definition of poverty is to have no resources or abilities that the world desires, then we can perhaps say that wealth is to have those resources or abilities that the world desires. Therefore, I would say almost everyone here in this room is wealthy. I don't want to make that as a blanket, but I'd probably say almost everyone in this room is wealthy because I'm sure none of you classified as yourself as wealthy when I began to preach. But in that definition, yeah, we are wealthy. And many commentators... And this is where it gets, starts to get really interesting. Say that the biggest trial that a Christian faces is how to deal with wealth. And it's not just material wealth. It's not just rich money. But it's wealth, having the ability and resources that can make a plan. That's so interesting, friends. They say the toughest trial is not the trials that we kind of thought they, they were. All the trials that I mentioned, it's actually just having resources and abilities and finances. And let's have a look at why uh, that might be true. I'm just going to highlight three tests of wealth. First, the test of ownership. Deuteronomy 8 verse 17 says, Beware lest in your heart, beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. So the context of this is that um, God speaks to the Israelites and he says, listen, by the way, you were in slavery. You had no wealth, no resources in terms of to get you out of slavery. I got you out of slavery. I got you a land. In that land, there were vineyards. There were fruit trees. There were wells. Everything that you had, I actually gave you. But here's what's going to happen. You're going to sometimes say in your heart, hey, listen, it was actually me. I'm the, you know, it's my hard work and, and me who actually got this wealth. And he says, listen, the first test in terms of wealth is actually a problem of ownership versus stewardship. So the, the first test here is actually what begins to happen is that God gives you the ability to accumulate wealth. He gives you the ability to get a job, to buy a house, to, to grow up in a home that, where you could go to university or those type of things. He gives you the ability and then you earn the wealth and you say, actually, it's mine. It belongs to me. I remember um, we bought our children some magnums. It's quite a few years ago. And I asked one of my children, I don't remember who it was, can I have a bite? 
So I went into the garage, I bought them, I gave them all four ice creams. I said, can I have a bite? No, Dad, it's mine, get your own. It's like, no, actually, I worked to get the money to give you the ice cream. I wasn't even asking you for the whole ice cream. I was just asking for a little bite. A little person says something begins, no, it is mine. Get your own. We laugh, but that's really what happens to wealth. We somehow think that we have ownership. And when we have ownership, then we need to control it. And when we control it controls us. And we get happy when we've got a lot of wealth and we get anxious when the wealth could go away. Can you see when it's ownership, when it's stewardship, stewardship is taking good care of uh, what is not yours. This building doesn't belong to us. We just need to take care of it. All these things that, that many of you contributed, these, the, you know, the, the equipment, the chairs, everything, hundreds of thousands of rand, I don't own that. I just get to steward it. And God willing, hope hand it over in a better condition in 50 years' time. <laughs> First test is test of ownership. Second test is test of security. Proverbs 18 verse 11 says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. So, Wealth, first test is we think we own it and therefore we control. The second thing that it does is that it actually, it, it brings us a form of security. It says, it, and the same with um, in the first passage we read, it, it says, wealth is like a strong city, not just a city, but a strong city. And you see in Europe, uh, these, these amazing massive walls that are built around uh, a town or a village to protect them. And in that city, you would feel safe because there is this security that is strong and no one can come in and touch you and you rest uh, at night at peace because you live in a strong city. And the writer says, you think wealth will provide you with security, but it's only in your imagination. I met um, a uh, Shona-speaking man from Zimbabwe, and uh, as part of our community, and I said, what do you do? And I think, if I'm correct, he said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm working in someone's garden. I said, no. I said, and in Zim, what were you doing? He said, I was a math professor. I said, so you're a math professor, with a career and income, and now you're a gardener because of what's happened. And in a moment, our strongest city, the thing that you think is not, can, can never be taken away, can be taken away. I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about wealth as the ability and resources to make a plan. And generally, wealthy people always have that ability, if not you or a friend or someone or someone who can actually sort things out. And the writer teaches that it's a false sense of security. It's just out of imagination. The third test of wealth is the test of captivity. Proverbs 13 verse 8 says, The ransom of a man's life is wealth, but a poor man, he has no threat. 
That's really funny. It's saying, actually, the wealth that we work hard to buy us that freedom actually ends up enslaving us for the very reasons that we said, because it moves to control and it enslaves us. But a poor man is not worried about that. A ransom is something that you must pay to get free. And the writer is saying that we um, are often held captive by our wealth. So Jesus meets a young man, and uh, uh, the young man, I think, uh, is uh, a God-fearing man, loves God, wants to serve God, wants to follow God, and he says, I'm obeying all the commandments, and Jesus says, one thing you lack, which is quite amazing, because it's just one. He says, I, just, in, I, I sense there's just one issue in your life that I think we just need to deal with. And what is amazing is that Jesus is amazingly at spotlighting areas in our lives where we no longer trust in him. He says, go and sell all your, your riches and you know, give to the poor and come follow me. And he's, so, so now the guy's got a choice. He's got the choice of actually being in the same group of the disciples with Jesus. He gets to live and eat and walk with Jesus. And he's obviously been captivated by Jesus. He's got this amazing, life-transforming, one in a million opportunities to be with Jesus. And he's got wealth. And he chooses wealth. Why would someone do that? Why would, here's why, same reason you and I get stuck. It's because wealth holds us has the ability to enslave us and captivate us. So what was really amazing um, was this week, uh, I just clicked on a BBC um, little documentary on my app, and um, it was entitled this, Are Wealthy People Heartless? So I thought, okay, I'm going to give this a watch. And this is not a Christian. He's not writing from any biblical point of view. He's just done some research around uh, uh, rich people and poor people. So he says this. He says, rich people are far less likely to help a person across the road, an old lady. Which I thought was quite a strange statement. Um, but then he went to say this. He said that wealth enables you to buy privacy, a bigger home, with bigger walls. And then the privacy that we long for separates us from the community around us. And once we're separated from the community around us, we cannot help but think we're better than them. And once we think we're better than them, we feel less compassion. How's that? Huh? Not a Christian. He's just observing what wealth does. He says wealth alienates you from the cry of those around you. And you see poverty, and it doesn't really move your heart. He makes this amazing statement. He says, wealth has the capacity to make us anti-human. Wow, how's that? Wealth has the capacity to make us anti-human. And so Jesus and James and Christopher Ryan, the author of this documentary, all say the same thing is that wealth has a far greater ability to influence us following Jesus than what we've ever imagined. It's far more impactful than what we ever dreamed. 
And the reason why we don't see it, because we grow up and this is a normal environment for us. And sometimes it takes a non-Christian, Christopher Ryan, to say, hey, listen, your wealth has the ability to alienate you and to make you independent from one another and most of all, independent from God. And so uh, James is uh, talking about the trials that the rich and poor face. I've mostly talked about wealthy because this is essentially a wealthy community. So that's the trials that they face. Both rich and poor face trials. Secondly, what can they boast in? Firstly, the, it says the poor can boast in their exaltation. And um, this is quite an amazing thing. Because it, to, to be exalted means to, to be lifted up. And to be to humiliated means to be brought low, but not in that horrible word. Just, it just means to humble yourself. And so James says that there's two things that happens to a Christ follower if you're rich or you're poor. If you're poor, you're going to be lifted up. And if you are rich, you're going to be brought down or humbled. And what is amazing is that everyone comes to the cross on equal ground through the gospel. That's what Jesus does. Well, Brennan, how so? And I want to be really careful here because in all honesty, uh, this part of how the poor get lifted up needs far more greater, um, maybe nuanced and maybe explanation than just a short little thing like as if, well, don't worry if you're poor, God will lift you up. And that's really not what I'm saying. I'm just maybe trying to explain theologically around what happens to uh, a person that the Bible uh, describes as poor and says that... um, uh, for a poor person, they lift it up. Well, how so? How does believing in Christ lift up a poor person? Uh, it gives them a new identity. Um, it says that you are loved, valued, and treasured, not for your wealth or your education or the color of your skin or anything. You are loved, valued, and treasured because you belong to Jesus. But then it's it's more than that, and that is that the poor are always on the periphery of society, yeah? The poor live on the margins, but uh, uh, with Jesus, the poor are no longer on the margins, but the very center of what God is doing. Well, how is that possible, Brendan? How do the poor become the very center? How do they move from the periphery to the center? And here's here's what happens, is that James says this explosive line, he says the rich are poor, Sorry, the poor are rich in faith. Well, how do the poor get rich in faith? You know, practically, why are the poor, why do the poor have more faith than, than the rich? Well, the, the reality is that wealth buys you the ability or gives you the ability to make a plan. So this is generally what I've seen if you have got some wealth and your child gets sick or you get sick, you go to the doctor. If the doctor can't fix you, you go to the specialist. And you keep going until there is, and that's, God's giving you that ability and those resources, they, it's there. But the poor person has no such ability. Even queuing up in the clinic might mean that they never get to see who they need to get to see. And therefore, whilst they might pursue those avenues, their real faith is, God, you better heal my boy. And that it's just, it's not a better or a worse, it's just a practicality of what poverty and wealth bring. 
And so it's like a muscle that you use. The more that you use it, the bigger it gets. And so poverty, and these are generalizations. I'm not saying that about, about every single person. But generally, poverty produces greater faith muscle than wealth. Is it making sense, guys? And so here's the beauty and I'm telling you, friends, if you understand this, if you get it within your heart, it would completely transform the way that you view those who are poor. Completely. Peter says that um, our faith is more precious than silver and gold. In other words, the greatest wealth, faith is more important than silver and gold. And if the rich, sorry, if the poor have a greater faith than silver and gold, or what's precious, suddenly it, it redefines what wealthy is. If, 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 if true wealth is faith, is to have a great faith, because Peter says that wealth is more precious than silver or gold. If true wealth is faith, then the rich suddenly have, the poor suddenly have something that we really need. I'm, 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 I'm struggling a little bit, but I hope I'm trying to make sense here. Let me just put it a little bit more simply. So many times in our previous community where they were rich and poor, a poor person would come up and they would testify to the struggles that they were having. And when you hear their struggles, you're like, oh my goodness, those are real struggles. And they go, but I trust in God. My God is good. My God will come through. And as they begin to speak, you're like, oh, my faith is strengthened just by being in their midst. Why? Because there is a genuineness and authenticity and a realness to their faith. The poor are rich in faith. Therefore, you can see how in God's kingdom, it's an upside-down kingdom. It's, it's crazy. We think we've got the resources, we've got the abilities, we've got the know-how, and because of that, we can help the poor. And that is, to an extent, true, but it's not one way. It's both ways, and when we start to engage the poor with the attitude of, I'm coming as a learner, one who can grow in faith because of you, you humble yourself, and can you see the beautiful movements that are starting to happen here? The poor are lifted up, and the rich are brought down because of this beautiful thing called faith in Jesus. And when a community gets that, it starts to get transformed. It's beautiful stuff to say, friends. So the poor can boast in their, um, in their exaltation. And I do want to say this. It's the heart of the Father, not just to care for the poor, but to lift them up further than us. It's the heart of the Father, not just to care for the poor, but to lift them up to high places. That's what the gospel does. So the poor can boast and they lift it up and they're lifting up. What can the rich boast? The rich can boast in their humiliation. Well, that doesn't sound very nice because humiliation is a word that we would describe as shame, but that's not what the biblical version of humiliation is. It's actually being humbled. It's actually just having a right perspective of who you are in the eyes of God. Or practically, it's just saying, Lord, thank you so much that you've given me wealth, but I recognize that my wealth comes from you and my abilities come from you and all the things that you've given me come from you. And Lord, I want to steward them well. 
So we can boast that God will put us through trials that humble us. I love Psalm 119 because he, he loves God's word, but he says, before I obeyed your, you know, I was, I was afflicted. I went through trials so that I could obey your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So there's something about uh, what we're going through that will produce humility within us. So here's what James is saying. He's saying you and I can expect trials that will reduce your dependence upon yourselves and, re- and, and create a greater reliance on God. James is not saying wealth is bad. He's not saying abilities and reasons. Those are beautiful things that God has given us. The trials are there not to take away wealth. They're there to reduce dependence on wealth. You are looking at me really crossly. I'm just the messenger. This is James. If you want to get cross, speak to him. We can expect that these trials that we go through are painful, difficult, ongoing, and perhaps confusing. We can expect that God will allow circumstances around our wealth and our abilities that will move us from reliance on ourselves to reliance on him. And James says that process is humiliation. It's the same word that is used for Jesus on a cross. It's, it's not a shameful word, it's a beautiful word that Jesus humbled himself even unto death, even on the cross in obedience to God. It's a willingness to yield to God in obedience. And uh, when we follow Jesus, he shines a light in every area of our life um, where we don't want him to shine. Uh, he's not a bully, he doesn't bully way, but if we allow him, he'll shine a light in every area where we don't trust him and bring trials to bear that are training ground. So Tash and I had the privilege of being part of a community that was rich and poor. And by poor, um, I'll give you an example. There was a Malawian family, speak Chichewa, and um, uh, they rented a shack off a shack. So there was a shack, and then those people sub-rented to another, so no water and no electricity. And you might say, well, that's okay, because you, you know, you're used to that with ESCOM, but it's actually the electricity you can do without, but water is actually very difficult to live without for an extended period of time because it affects everything. It affects your cleanliness, it affects cooking, it affects your ablutions, everything, you actually need water. It's harder to live without water than electricity. And so, uh, no water and no ablutions. And, um, and, and these children would have to study in these environments and go to school. And in the same church, you would have a family uh, that were wealthy. And they would come together on a Sunday to worship God. And the gospel would go out every week to say, if you're rich, this is what God is doing. And if you're wealthy, this is what God is doing. And I'm telling you, week in and week out, year in and year out, the ability for, for the gospel to grab hold of those two things was a lot slower than what I imagined. 
it's an incredibly slow process to allow God to infiltrate your self-dependence upon your ability and your wealth. There's just such an inbred cultural narrative that makes us want to make a plan and look after ourselves and not really trust in God. And it's the same within poverty. We found that the foreigners would always sit in the back and they would sit in the back because they're really saying we're not really worthy, and, you know, in terms of just like that's our spot. Well, who said so? Because the gospel says that in the family of God, there's no hierarchy. Who, who made that rule up? But can you see how powerful and how evasive the, the, our upbringings and the poverty and the wealth begin to shape us? But little by little, uh, God did some amazing things and continues to do so. And the wonder and the glory of Jesus, not just preaching academic truth that we've learned from a commentary, I think we carry a testimony. The wonderful thing about the gospel is that it is able to bring a poor man and a rich man together and where they can learn to really honor, love, and appreciate one another despite this incredible chasm of difference that's there. That's what the gospel does. That's what Jesus does. He really is magnificent. So the, the, the rich person can boast in the fact that Jesus is kind enough to deal with our independence and our self-reliance. Thirdly, how do we respond? Uh, there's one word, let. It says, let the rich man, uh, let the poor person man boast and the rich man boast, let. Let. In other words, it's actually an instruction. Let means to yield. It means to submit. The Beatles sang a song, Let It Be. I'm highly tempted to sing it. And really, the Beatles were saying, hey, let it be. In other words, whatever happens, it happens. Let it be. There will be an answer. Let it be. But that's not the let that... that James is talking about. He's saying yield to God, submit to God. And of course, Peter talks about there's, there's two movements as we follow God. The one is to humble ourselves. And as we humble ourselves, the promise of God is, to, is to, that he will lift, it up, lift us up. And the other one is to be proud. And uh, uh, if we're proud, it says that we will uh, work in opposition to God. So when it comes to our wealth, and our abilities and our resources, uh, the Bible teaches us there's two movements. The one is you can say, hey, God, you know, this is mine. We never say that, but we live that. This belongs to me because it brings me security like that strong city, and I cannot let it go, Lord, because of what it brings me, or it's very difficult to, you know, what it, of letting it go. And I don't mean sending, selling your stuff. I mean actually trusting God. And so that's proud. You actually you work in opposition to God. And so to what does it mean to really let, to, to really yield your resources and your abilities and your talents and your assets to God? I think it's a, it starts with the heart. And that's why I said it's heart surgery that God wants to do. And I think it's often little by little. Some people are very radical. 
But most of us, it's little by little. And I think it just starts with a prayer. And I'm, I, would, I think it's a really dangerous prayer. Uh, but it's this type of prayer. Lord, um, thank you for everything that you've given me. You've given me the ability to study, to, you know, you've placed me in a position where I can work, where I can get promoted, where I can earn money. You've given me the ability to buy and sell. You've given the ability when things go wrong to make a plan. You've given me so much ability, Lord. And Lord, I recognize that some of that produces a dependence upon myself and not a dependence on you. And Lord, I'm giving you permission to deal with that area in my life. That prayer should carry a help warning. And little by little, sometimes kindly and sometimes relentlessly, Jesus will. Because just like a parent disciples a child, so he wants to disciple us. I think James is really, really kind to us. And I'm going to stop there. Um, but you might say, is James cross? Is he angry with wealthy people? No, he's not. Um, although it does appear a little when you read the rest of the book. Here's the thing. I think James has seen the life of his brother Jesus and he's seen how Jesus has lived in complete dependence upon God. And he says to the rich, your wealth is getting in the way of really following Jesus. Deal with it. And he says to the poor, your poverty is getting in the way of Jesus. Getting the way of Jesus. Trust God. Both of them He's pointing towards Jesus. And the real heart of his message is, will you trust the Father to provide, protect, care, love, even if you lost all of that ability? Can you really say that? And I'm, I'm not asking you to answer because it's not a fair question, but there is a journey towards that. And the invitation of James is to say yes to that journey. Yeah? Why don't you stand? Ask the news to come forward. I'd love just to pray for you. If there's something that I've said that has been a little bit unclear or you'd like further explanation, you're welcome to come chat to me afterwards. Complaints can happen on Monday. <laughs> and also you, you're welcome just to raise your hands. You don't have to, but sometimes it's just a symbol of just yielding to God. You don't have to do that. Father, firstly, thank you for the incredible abilities that you've given us, Lord, and where you've placed us and what our parents sacrificed for us. We are so grateful, Lord. But we also recognize, Lord, our heart longs to say, it's mine, find your own. And I pray for every single person here, Lord, that you would give us such a confidence in you 
that's greater than the confidence in wealth. And we recognize the only way that you create that confidence normally is put us through trials. And so, Father, would you give us the ability to endure the things that we face with confidence and with joy. And I commit these precious people to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship, friends.